I am, as uh, you were told, Paul Cartledge, and I'm extremely grateful to the organizers, Ariel Retique, to our introducer this evening, but above all to you. So thank you so much for coming. And maybe we're wrong, but we're assuming that perhaps you haven't read absolutely every word of Herodotus in the original Greek. Am I right? Yeah. So what I thought I'd start with, it's uh, in a way a trivial point, but 2017... If you believe Herodotus was born in 484 BC or BCE, and that's a date which is quite widely canvassed among the ancient sources, if you believe that, this year is the exactly 2500th anniversary of his birth. Now, some of you may have quickly done the mental arithmetic, 484 and 2017, that's 2,501. Ah, but there's no BC or BCE naught, or AD or CE naught. So you add the two together, BC plus AD, and take off one. And so you get 2,500. So I'm going to ask Tom, first of all, and this, by the way, is the artifact. This is sort of what it looks like in its uh, paperback incarnation. How come you were sufficiently fascinated by Herodotus to teach yourself because he did not study Greek as I did from the age of 11, to teach yourself uh, enough ancient Greek to be able confidently and competently to want to translate this particular work, which happens to be the longest single piece of Greek prose surviving from ancient Greece? Well, because um, when it comes to uh, classics, and by classics I don't just mean uh, ancient Greek and Roman classics, I mean the whole gamut. Herodotus was my first love. So I read Herodotus before, I don't know, Dickens or Jane Austen or anyone like that. And the reason for that was that um, as a little boy, I was uh, kind of revoltingly into Greeks killing one another. Um, in fact, can we, is, is it possible to have the, um, uh, the, the, the other PowerPoint? Um, there, was a, there was a book that, that some here may, may recognize by a chap called Peter Connolly, who was a, a great expert um, in Greek armor and armaments, um, and a very good artist as well. Uh, and I am going to, I hope, come to him. So, uh, there we go. Um, <laughs> I absolutely adored this book. This is the uh, Spartans coming out um, to fight the Persians at Thermopylae. And I got completely obsessed with this story. It seemed to me that it was basically Lord of the Rings only true to my 12-year-old self, a kind of evil empire coming out from the east and heroically being defended by the, the peoples of the west and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, well, if I'm going to get to grips with this uh, story, I'm going to have to read Herodotus because it was dawning on me that basically everything we knew about this story of the, the, the story of the Greek wars came from Herodotus. So very daringly, I, I went into the, um, the adult section of the local library, first time I'd been there, uh, and, and found Herodotus. And it came in, the, the, the ones that they had came in two volumes. It was the Everyman volume. Took them back home. Um, started reading it. Actually, I'll read, I'll read you the, the very first... So this is the very first sentence of the first work of history ever written. Herodotus from Halicarnassus, 
Here displays his inquiries that human achievement may be spared the ravages of time and that everything great and astounding and all the glory of those exploits which serve to display Greeks and barbarians alike to such effect be kept alive and additionally and most importantly to give the reason they went to war. And I thought, brilliant, war, that's what I want. Uh, carried on, and before I knew it, there was a kind of weird story about a bloke who wanted another bloke to see his wife naked. Because, as Herodotus says, and Herodotus clearly thinks this is very odd, he really found his wife attractive. And this was highlighted by Herodotus as something very peculiar. Yeah. And I thought, okay, whatever. Uh, then there was a kind of odd story about a bloke jumping off a ship onto a dolphin. And so it went on, and I was kind of thinking, cut to the chase, Herodotus. <laughs> anyway, then we get to the Persians, and I thought, brilliant, here we go. And we get to the, the, the Persians invade Egypt. And Herodotus says, at this point, because Egypt is so interesting, I might just pause and tell you a little bit about Egypt. And by a little bit about Egypt, he means about 250 pages. And it just went on and on and on like this. It was like an enormous shaggy dog story. And the whole of the first volume... He didn't get to the, 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 the wars at all. Then finally, in the second volume, he does get to the wars. And you get Marathon, and you get Thermopylae, you get Salamis, you get Plataea. It was great. It was unbelievably thrilling and exciting. And because of that, I fell in love with Herodotus. But what I then realized as I kind of grew up was that actually my early understanding of um, Herodotus as writing a kind of equivalent of Lord of the Rings couldn't have been further from the truth. Because the wonderful thing about Herodotus and the reason why that first half of the histories is going all over the place is because actually Herodotus doesn't buy into the idea at all that the Persians are unmitigatedly evil. In fact, he, he rather admires them. And the thing about Herodotus, as, as Plutarch famously condemned him as a philo Barbaros, yes. a kind of barbarian lover, a bleeding-heart liberal, if you like, um, <laughs> was that Herodotus was as fascinated in the customs and the behaviour of other peoples as he was in those of the Greeks. And that is why he is so compulsively and engagingly enjoyable is because this is a man who is basically interested in everything. And it's not even as though he's interested just in, you know, in, in other people's. He's interested in uh, cannabis. He's interested in weird sheep. He's, I mean, he's, there's nothing. He's interested in rivers. There's nothing he's not interested in. And one of the joys, and, and this, I think, is the definition of a classic, is that every time you come back to it and you have maybe moved on, you've got new experiences, you've got new perspectives you find that you're getting something new out of it. And essentially, the entire course of my writing career, which has not been an academic one, I, I have returned to Herodotus again and again. So I adapted him for Radio 4. I wrote a, a, a book, Persian Fire, which was about the Persian Wars and the build-up to it, which drew very, very heavily on, on Herodotus, obviously. Then I got to translate him. And translating a text is... Like a marriage, it's either make or break. You know, you will either, you'll decide, what have I done? What am I hitching myself to this? Or you will, you will emerge from it with your love absolutely confirmed. And actually, the, the way it's, as Paul said, it's a, an incredibly long text, but it's conveniently divided up. Was that in the, Helen, in the yes, Hellenistic period, in, in the Alexandrian Library? Well after Scholars lifetime. Divided up into little sections. So I gave myself this thing that I was going to do a little section of it 
every day, come what may, Christmas, going on holiday, whatever, I was going to do it. And I finally finished it. And um, my, uh, my family <laughs> made, me, made me a little supper to celebrate. So there's Herodotus, there's Greek wine, Greek salad, Greek bread. Uh, and, and I was really incredibly happy, obviously, to have finished it. But I also felt a slight sense of bereavement because I knew that I would never be as close to Herodotus again. And now the current book I'm doing, I'm glad to say that it opens with the crucifixion of a Persian general on the shores of the Hellespont, which is the end of Herodotus. So even now I can't, can't leave him alone. Bless him. I mean, he, 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 is, he, he, he is a writer that you, you love, I think. I, uh, and bless, I love him. I love him. In his end is your beginning. So uh, I thought I'd just add uh, at this point a little bit about what we perhaps think we might know about him mm, as yes. opposed to what we learn about him from reading his work. And in his period, a man of intellect was not of huge interest to people who wrote stories or narrative accounts of public political actions, war, diplomacy, and that sort of thing. So in other words, not many people actually knew that much about him or cared to preserve much about him. And if I tell you that the longest single passage, as it were, bio of him comes from the 10th century of our era, so CE or AD. It's a Byzantine lexicon named Suda, which is the Turkish for thought. But that's it. A sort of five to ten lines is the most that we really know. And so the interest of that little bit of description lies principally in his family names, that is, the names of his dad and the names of one of his uncles, which are in their form not Greek. And you've got the map up there, which shows you where he's from, ancient Halicarnassus, which is modern Bodrum, so the windsurfers among you know instantly where Herodotus was from. But it's in the area known as Caria, and so lots of the people around Halicarnassus did not speak Greek as their first language, but Carian. And Herodotus's dad's name and one of his uncle's name both have Carian inflections. So either he was related directly by blood or by marriage to non-Greeks, or there was such close connection between his family and the locals that they, his family, adopted Carian names as a mark of sort of sympathy and connection. Why is this important? If he was born in 484, if... That's four years before the main portion of the action of his long, long work, which comes right at the end. So he would have been four when Xerxes of Persia, way off in Iran, led this multinational force across the Hellespont, that's the Dardanelles, into mainland Greece and then with a big navy down to central Greece through the islands and so on. And he, coming from that particular city in 484, was born a Persian subject. So if you can imagine your typical Greek of the middle of the 5th century didn't have a very high opinion 
of Persians and were actually very pleased that the Persians had not conquered them all in mainland Greece as well as Asia such that they were Persian subjects. Yet, and Tom has already made the point, despite this background where you might expect him to be triumphalist in a negative, anti barbarian sort of way. Greeks called all non-Greek speakers barbarians. It's not in itself a derogatory term. It's descriptive rather than uh, negatively evaluative. It became evaluative but originally was purely descriptive. So one of the many things that endear Herodotus to me, as well as all the things Tom said, is this extraordinary non-prejudice, this extraordinary even-handedness. So if we move on, the size of the work, um, that's something that's very, very striking. And I wondered if you'd like to say a little bit about the contents, the way the balance of the work works. Uh, well, I, I, kind of, I kind of implied it with, with saying that, yeah. you know, that, that you can divide the book into two. So the first four books are essentially panoramic, and then the, 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 the second... Um, the, the, the five. last five yeah. are, are um, essentially account of the war. But even when you're um, getting the account of you know, the, the famous battles, Marathon and Thermopylae and so on, um, never underestimate Herodotus' ability to go off at a spectacular tangent and, <laughs> and, and start talking about wild animals or uh, weird mythic occurrences. Um, and, and one of the reasons, I, actually, I, I mean, I think that, you know, again, saying that your, your understanding of Herodotus can evolve over time, and I think that one of the things that has changed is that when I first read it, it was in the a context of, of the Cold War, of um, America against the Soviet Union, and there was an obvious sense then that, that, that Thucydides, with his yeah. account of, of Athens against Sparta, held a much more precise mirror up to the world of the Cold War. But now I think um, in a world that is interconnected, in a world that is, is full of different perspectives, different customs, actually it's Herodotus's curiosity and ability to empathise with, with different perspectives that seems um, in, in a way more contemporary. And his style of analysis, his, the way in which he moves from subject to subject is actually one that will seem incredibly familiar to all of us who use the internet because there's absolutely that sense of, you know, when you're going from website to website to website, you're tracking thought over that. This is essentially what Herodotus is doing. And the reason why I find that moving is that, of course, the vast quantity of information, of fact, that is on the internet, and indeed <laughs> fake history, non-fact, uh, fake news, um, that is, in a sense, coming in a line of descent from what Herodotus is doing. Because history, is, it, it means researches, it means inquiries, it means a, a desire to understand not just about the past, but about everything. And if Herodotus is the father of history, he is also the father, in a sense, of non-fiction. And the way in which he, he, he can seem naive or gullible or he perhaps hasn't entirely got the point of things. It's not surprising because no one has ever done what he's trying to do. And so, in a sense, it couldn't be more moving to watch someone struggling with the sheer range of stuff that can be known about the world. That's what he's trying to do. Yeah, yeah. And 
the result of that is that you have a kind of a Wikipedia <laughs> for the 5th century BC, two and a half thousand years ago. And it's, um, it's, just, it's just breathtaking. And, and my 12-year-old my self wanted him to cut to the chase, to get to the battles. My almost 50-year-old self wants him... I, I wish he'd done a little bit more of all these extraordinary peoples. I mean, every so often you come across the kind of equivalent of a broken link online. You, you, the, there's a line where he says he's talking about the sack of Nineveh, an episode which, which appears in the Bible as well, and he says, I will, I will talk more about this later. And he never does. And, you know, there far from, the, uh, from yeah. thinking, you know, there's, the, 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 there's too much of him, I'm left thinking there's not enough. There is a bit of an irony here that those who did not like Herodotus, and we've already mentioned Plutarch for a start, called him the father of lies. So um, on the one hand, Tom and I look to what he seems to us, so far as we can judge, to get right. So that on the basis of his criticism of basically oral testimony, so he goes around travelling asking people that he thinks ought to know. They ought to be repositories of their local traditions, more or less accurately, going back, what, to the generation of their grandfathers. Probably no further back because memory becomes distorted and uncertain. So for all these reasons, Herodotus is um, um, particularly aware and alert to the problems of what counts as probability, credibility, and he even uses the word truth quite often. Yet, Plutarch, who disliked his even-handedness towards non-Greeks, his philobarbarism, accused him of lying. Also, because Plutarch came from a particular bit of Greece, namely Boeotia, central Greece, because some of his, as it were, ancestors had not played the most brilliant role in Herodotus's story, which most other Greeks believed, but a good Boeotian patriot was unwilling to believe. For example, that certain Boeotians had fought willingly on the Persian side against their fellow Greeks. He uh, acquired this tag also of father of lies. So just um, to be aware that that's part of the tradition. But, but, uh, what Herodotus does throughout is he talks about his sources yeah. as, as a good historian should. And he, he will repeatedly tell what seems to him a tall story, but with the caveat that he is repeating what he has been told. Yeah. And so there is, there is a famous example of him being told a story that he regards as ridiculous. And this story is that uh, oh, yes. the, yeah. uh, there was a, a pharaoh of Egypt who employed the Phoenicians, who were the great navigators of the day, to sail around the continent of Africa, what the Greeks called Libya. And Herodotus regards From this as being absolutely nonsensical. Um, he, but, but he says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to report it because that's what they said. And he says, one of their claims, which I personally find incredible, although others may not, was that while sailing around Libya, they had had the sun on their right-hand side. And that, of course, strongly suggests that actually the Phoenicians were telling the truth and they had indeed passed the equator. Because they're in the southern hemisphere, yes. Exactly. But, but then you get, you get other notorious episodes. So there's, there's, there's an account uh, Herodotus has of... Um, how and why India is so rich in gold. Uh, and he says that he has it on good authority from the Persians 
that this is the result of giant ants that uh, throw up sand and the gold is kind of flecked in with the, uh, with the sand. And what they do is they take camels and <laughs> wait till the ants asleep and then they grab the gold and then they scarper off on the camels. And, and Herodotus says, and the ants, which are the fastest creature known, pursue them. And you kind of think, what, what on earth's going on what? here? And there's this wonderful theory that, in fact, uh, <laughs> bear in mind that, that you know, we're talking Chinese whispers here, or at least Indian whispers, that Herodotus is reporting from what he regards as the easternmost limit of the world. He thinks that beyond the Indians, there are no other peoples to be found. So this is absolutely a report from the limits of the world. And that I think we, we could imagine that whatever the Indian word was for uh, these creatures, yes. it might have changed so, and warped and been adapted over the course yeah, of yeah. transmission to become the Greek word ant. But there is a wonderful theory by a French traveller. Um, a doctor, I think. Who suggests that it's a marmot. It's the Himalayan marmot. And that these dig, do indeed dig up um, sand and, and, and throw gold everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So possibly that's it. And there's another wonderful story that he tells about the, um, uh, the outermost reaches of Scythia, so Central Asia, that there are, there are rock, there are, there are mountains on which there are, are griffins, um, you know, griffins with these kind of hooked noses, um, like like birds crossed Eagle, with lions, eagles, eagles yeah, crossed yeah. with lions. Um, and and the, there is another wonderful theory um, that these are actually garbled reports of the fossils of Protoceratops, um, kind of dinosaur <laughs> that is all over the Gobi Desert, where these reports are supposedly coming from. And it's possible, I, I mean, I'd like to think it's true, that, these, that, the, that this is where the griffins come from. Um, you can see that admirers of Herodotus are practised in, in slightly clutching at straws with these traveller's stories. And there are certain ones that, where, where, frankly, one has to throw your hands up. There's a, he, he, he says that he goes to Egypt and that he got taken to a valley and there he was shown um, a vast pile of skeletons of winged snakes which, according to Herodotus, every year try and attack um, and enter Egypt, and they get stopped by a great army of ibises. And he says, and I know this to be true because I saw the skeletons myself. And, <laughs> you know, you, you, but as I say, the thing, the thing to do is not to sneer at this from our 21st perspective, where we've got, you know, we can look at anything that we want on, uh, on, 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 on the internet, but to think this is a man who is trying to set down what the world is like, and he's the first person to do that. Yeah, yeah. And, I think know. it's important to add where he came from is the part of the Greek world, Ionia, that part of um, Western Asia, where terrific breakthroughs were being made in a scientific way. And the very notion of trying to understand what the world, that is the non-human world, the cosmos, was made of, um, was being discussed. What Herodotus does is he combines that, he retains that uh, interest in nature, fusis, non-human nature. He adds to that a kind of anthropological passion for understanding customs. And perhaps yeah. we can come on to, there's a famous passage which uh, we would like to discuss with you concerning the centrality to him of the relativity yeah. or variability of uh, human customs. But before we get to that, I thought, Tom, would you just perhaps like to say a little bit about at whom do you think Herodotus was aiming 
his work and what was the medium through which he initially communicated before this amazingly long work was, can you imagine copying it uh, laboriously by hand on papyrus and then every copy has to be manually added. So, I mean, it's not the case that you do it once and then Xerox it. You have to keep on copying. So, a bunch of slaves probably, originally, uh, his own and his mates, and they thought this was worth preserving and then the intellectuals get their hands on a copy and they read it amongst themselves, they analyse its style as well as its content and that ultimately is why it's preserved, because Thucydides saw this as the great work after which and against which he must situate his own. So there's the two, yeah, if you like. Yeah, it's kind of anxiety of influence. Anxiety of influence. Kicking the, in. The twin fathers, if you like, of our profession, our ultimate genre of uh, intellectual activity, history, historiography, they are in dialogue and competition already themselves. Thucydides never mentions Herodotus. That's a very sure sign that he knew exactly all about Herodotus's work. He twice criticizes specific points that he says this author clearly got it wrong. He doesn't mention Herodotus, doesn't deign to mention Herodotus by name. But um, who do you think, apart from Thucydides? Well, he, sa- he says, yeah. doesn't he? I mean, in the, in the opening sentence, he says that his aim is to commemorate the achievements not just of the Greeks, but of the barbarians so as well. So that's sort of like so, Homer. And, 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 so, and so the anxiety of influence that Herodotus is operating under is exactly that, is, yeah. is, is that of Homer. And indeed, Herodotus was called the prose Homer. Yeah. And just as Homer was compared to, to the ocean, which the Greeks thought enclosed all the world because he was so teeming and infinite, so you get the same sense... Homeric sense of infinitude in Herodotus, yeah. and you know that th- th- there are elements within it that that are clearly drawing directly on um, on Homer, of which the, uh, the the description of Thermopylae would be, I think, a good example, yes, yes. because Leonidas, the king of Sparta who dies at Thermopylae, there is a description of the Persians and the Spartans fighting over his body, exactly as the Greek heroes and the Persian heroes Patroclus. are described as fighting over the, uh, over the corpse of Patroclus. Yeah. Um, but then again, you, you, you repeatedly get passages in Herodotus where he is being very rationalistic and essentially um, rather in the style of... of um, you know, books that try to make sense of, I don't know... uh, Popular science? Well, no, I was was kind of thinking, you know, the truth behind King Arthur or the truth behind, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. He he says the truth behind um, the story that that Helen was abducted, and again, this is right at the beginning, is that actually it was a kind of process of tit-for-tat princess rustling between Greeks and barbarians that... Uh, a load of Phoenicians came in and stole a woman called Io, who in Greek myth is, is, um, is, is a much more overtly mythic figure. And then the Greeks go off and they nick, they nick Europa, who again in Greek myth is you know, Zeus abducts her. And then, and then, it, so, and then Helen is just situated in that. And, and Herodotus has this kind of wonderful... Uh, what were the Greeks thinking? I mean, it's ridiculous to go sailing off just because someone stole a woman. And never got to Troy. And, and, and yes, and all that went to Troy was an image of her. This is Herodotus, though he's not original, but he's very critical. Can you imagine? 
doubting the very basis of the entire Iliad. And so I think that's a part of the appeal Not of it. Bad, and, it? And, you know, and that's part of the, the, the joy of the kind of, you know, the sense of, of, of the popularization of the Ionian method is you can, you, know, you can imagine the kind of thrill. It's a bit like the... the um, I, I, I suppose, yes, I mean, I suppose it's a bit like, you know, the truth behind Mary Magdalene, all that kind of thing. Slight whiff of Dan Brown about him, perhaps, always. <laughs> Although he's a much better writer, Spare of course. <laughs> so would you like to pitch into the question of why we should still today, you think, be reading not just your translation, but um, any translation Well, I think read Herod. him because he is fun to read. I mean, that's the main reason. Um, but he is also, I think, um, th- there are passages where he, he can seem endearingly naive, and that is absolutely part of the fun. But there are also other passages where, I mean, he seems to me completely to speak for us now in 2017. And there's one particular passage which, um, Paul, you, you, yeah. you alluded to. And maybe um, you can and this, get this... up on the screen. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and this... Um... Oh, yes. Wow. So this, this, this comes in the course of Herodotus' account of the, um, Egyptian, the Persian conquest of Egypt. And we've had his lengthy disquisition on Egypt, full of stuff about the sources of the Nile, how Egyptian men sit down to urinate and Egyptian women stand up, their love of cats, how the daughter of of Cheops prostituted herself to build her little pyramid in front of the Great Pyramid, all kinds of of, of, of details of mummification, all kinds of, 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 of fascinating stuff. Then he gets on to the account of the Persian conquest of Egypt, it's Cambyses, the son of Cyrus the Great, the founder of the Persian Empire, and Herodotus' source for the Persian conquest is almost certainly uh, priests in Egypt yeah. who understandably are not very keen on Cambyses and portray him as a bloodthirsty lunatic. And he is supposed to have found the idea that gods could have animal heads hilarious. He is supposed to have um, s- uh, skewered a bull that had turned up and which the Egyptians had thought was a, go- was a god, and generally to have uh, blasphemed against everything that the Egyptians held sacred. And Herodotus regards this as beyond the pale, and this is the story he tells to explain why he thinks it is offensive to mock other people's traditions and customs. Everywhere you look, it seems to me, the evidence accumulates that Cambyses was utterly deranged For why otherwise would he have mocked what to others were hallowed customs? Just suppose that someone proposed to the entirety of mankind that a selection of the very best practices be made from the sum of human custom. Each group of people, after carefully sifting through the customs of other peoples, would surely choose its own. Everyone believes his own customs to be far and away the best. From this it follows that only a madman would think to jeer at such matters. Indeed, there is a huge amount of corroborating evidence to support the conclusion that this attitude to one's own native customs is universal. Take, for example, this story from the reign of Darius. He called together some Greeks who were present and asked them how much money they would wish to be paid to devour the corpses of their fathers, to which the Greeks replied that no amount of money would suffice for that. Next, Darius summoned some Indians called Calantians, who do eat their parents, and asked them in the presence of the Greeks 
who were able to follow what was being said by means of an interpreter, how much money it would take to buy their consent to the cremation of their dead fathers, at which the Calantians cried out in horror and told him that his words were a desecration of silence. Such, then, is how custom operates. And how right Pindar is, it seems to me, when he declares in his poetry that custom is the king of all. And the thing that is remarkable about that passage is not just the kind of sense that, that, that in a multicultural society, I guess we are particularly prone to uh, support the idea that, 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 that all customs are worthy of respect. Uh, you can see why Plutarch didn't like him. Um, it's the fact that Herodotus chooses as the moral fulcrum of that story a Persian king, Darius, who was the man who sent the army that was defeated at Marathon. And the reason that Darius summons Greeks and Persians is that the Greeks come from the western edges of Darius's empire and the Indians come from the eastern half, the eastern edges. So what Herodotus is doing is imagining himself in the, the splendid robes of a Persian king and working out how the world would seem to Darius. And that seems to me a staggering yeah, yeah. act of, of kind of imagination in the very first work of history that is written. I'd just add a couple of footnotes. First of all, that the custom, the particular custom chosen to illustrate this point is surely one of the most sensitive for all of us, by definition, mortals, our dead relatives. How do we treat them? Secondly, there's a bit of humour. Greeks were notorious in the eyes of others, or some Greeks in the eyes of some other Greeks, for being bribable. And the Greek word for a bribe and the Greek word for a gift is identical. So one person's bribe is another person's gift. And therefore, to offer Greeks a lot of money to change the custom was a sort of um, humorous um, <laughs> remark. But, but, and again, because, because as Herodotus tells us, for the Persians, you get taught, you teach your children three things. You teach them to shoot a bow and arrow, very useful. Um, to ride. You teach them to ride a horse, again, um. very useful. And you teach them to tell the truth. And this, is, this, this reflects something that is authentically a part of Persian culture. Yeah. Truth was indeed, as a concept, very important to the Persians. And Herodotus picks that up. And there is a, a motif running throughout the histories that the Persians tell the truth and they find the kind of more flexible approach to the concept <laughs> of truth among the Greeks a constant cause yeah. of, 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 of bemusement. And again, that requires Herodotus to see his own people as another people see them. Which again, you know, in the very first work of history, yeah, yeah. Is, is, is a formidable thing yeah. for him to have done. And then just the third footnote cannibalism, eating other humans, whether of your enemies or your own people, all Greeks thought that was a typically barbarian thing to do, and they abhorred it. And I would guess that Herodotus himself was not in you know, keen on, in favour of it, as a general practice. If the Indians of the Calantians ate their dead relatives, okay, that's, for them, 
their highest manner of honouring their dead brother. So Herodotus withdraws and suspends his, as it were, normal Greek view that this is a classically barbarian thing. So the example he chooses, the humour of it, and the extreme non-judgmentalism of it are all, I think, quite extraordinary traits of a most extraordinary mind. Although there is, there is a kind of a hideous um, episode in, in book one, um, in the, 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 the account of his life of Cyrus, the founder of the Persian Empire, which does indeed feature a, a particularly revolting kind of Titus Andronicus style um, <laughs> feast of... I won't go read it, it's, it's really horrible, but quite good. You heard it here first. <laughs> so um, we're coming up because we thought we'd um, tail off round about a quarter to to leave time for you to ask uh, mainly Tom obviously uh, questions but um, just another five minutes or so on what would you say if anybody was to ask you why should we read Herod's Day what do you think are his most precious contributions either to our common practice of history history writing or and to the sum of uh, human thought intellection well, as I, as I said, I think that, that um, Herodotus is the father not just of history but of the very concept of, of non-fiction, of the, the notion that um, the wonders of the world are worth recording and exploring um, for their own sake, that they have a value and an interest for their own sake. Um, I think specifically for history... The idea that um, sources matter, mm. the idea that um, you can't... Of course, you can, you, you can just write down um, heroic, epic accounts of what happened, but one of the things that he's doing by deconstructing Homer is, is, is to imply that that is inadequate if you want to know what actually happened. So in a sense... You know, Heinrich Schliemann and, 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 and the whole attempt to historicise the myth of the Trojan War really begins with Herodotus. Um, and there is, one, there, there is an incredibly powerful passage that comes right at the end of the histories, and it's before the Battle of Plataea, which is the last great land battle between the Persian invasion force and a combined alliance of Greeks. And the, the, the Greeks will win. But before the battle, um, as Paul said, the, the Boeotians, the Thebans, and, and other people like them are on the Persian side. And the Persians and the Boeotians, they hold a great joint banquet. Oh, and yes. the, uh, a, a Persian and a, and a Boeotian share a couch and, and talk. And Herodotus says that he spoke to someone who, who was there, that he spoke to that person and that what he is now reproducing, and he says what this man told him about what the person he'd sat with had said. And the person he'd sat with was a pessimist and thought that the Persians were going to lose. And Herodotus says, I got this from the man who talked to this person. And you get, I get a kind of shiver down the spine when I hear uh, someone who fought in the Battle of Britain describing it. 
you know, it seems so far away, or when, when you hear recordings of people who fought in the First World War. But what you get in this, you get that shiver down the spine amplified because you are hearing the voice of someone who fought in a battle two and a half thousand years ago. And that really, <laughs> that's where it begins. And it's, 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 it's powerful and moving, and anyone interested in, in how we can know about the past you, know, you cannot read that passage, I think, and not, not, not feel a kind of sense of awe, really. So, anything more you want to add at this point, or we can throw it open? He's great, guys. He's great. <laughs> he's great. That's enough. <laughs> right. Penguin thinks he's great as well, because they publish not just one, but two translations by different people. So... Either they think he's worth a lot of money or they think he's worth um, getting out there in different versions. So, please, who would like to uh, ask Tom uh, a question or make a comment uh, of any sort? Uh, Do we have a roving mic? Um, Yes, we might have. Do we have a question, more importantly? (laughs) We can invent some more, if need be. What do we know? uh, We just do it seems amazing that such a fully formed work as his history is just, as it were, comes out of nowhere. Um, what do we know of Herodotus's forebears and uh, both sort of stylistically and, and in terms of the genre um, that he's writing in? Shall I pitch in on that one? Yeah, There's one that. particular person who came from a city not far from uh, Halicarnassus called Miletus, and that is where the Western world's first known intellectual, Thales, came from. And Thales flourished about 150 years before Herodotus. And he had, well, they were called pupils, whether they were pupils in the direct sense or whether they simply followed Thales, Anaximander, Anaximenes, people who tried to understand earthquakes, people who tried to work out what the human, what the non-human universe was made of. Well, there was a guy called Hecateus from Miletus, flourished in the generation before Herodotus, and he wrote two works. One, genealogies, that's a sort of history told through family relations. And the other one, and this is more directly an ancestor of Herodotus, called A Journey Around the World, uh, rather modestly entitled because the world probably was just the eastern Mediterranean. But the thing of it was that Hecateus was critical, like Herodotus, of myth, of stories about divine supernatural phenomena and about tales which humans like to tell each other because it made them feel good about themselves or their ancestors, but were untrue. And one of the very few um, quotations from Hecateus that survive is uh, a saying, the Greeks have many stories and ridiculous stories. In other words, I find them ridiculous because I apply to them my... Uh, criterion of rationality, what is plausible, what is likely to have been the case, I find them either impossible or far-fetched, and therefore I laugh at them. Well, that is a kind of ancestor of Herodotus's uh, intellectual outlook. Though Herodotus, and I said Thucydides <laughs> is rude about Herodotus, Herodotus is rude about Hecateus. Herodotus says, I went to Egypt 
and um, the priest in Memphis, he showed me statues of all his predecessors going back in roughly one per generation. That's the implication. And there were 342 of them, going back 342, as it were, generations. Hecateus went to the priests, this is Herodotus, and boasted that he was descended in the 14th generation from such and such a a hero. So, you know, we Greeks, we think we have a lengthy, distinguished ancestry. We are children compared with the Egyptians. Well, if you didn't like Egyptians, and many Greeks did not, they weren't going to be pleased to be told that they were merely stupid by comparison with this immense tradition of uh, antiquity, which the Egyptians could legitimately boast. And he's, I mean, he's, he's respectful of, of Thales and, and described the famous account of how Thales predicted an eclipse. And this is, um, and, and, and also his ability, his expertise with hydrology, and this, this gets, uh, he oh, says, yes. puffs this up. Very, but yeah, but, but the, really, the only time he, he's, he's, he's bitchy is about Agatha. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> And again, you, 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 you get a kind of flash of his personality there that, that um, you know, if, if there is anyone who people are going to say is Herodotus's precursor, that's who it is. But and so is, that's why he's kind of... There is a bit of an oddity. He came from Halicarnassus, which used the Doric dialect to greet the three main dialects, Doric, Ionic, Aeolic. And he was a Dorian speaker, a Dorian ethnically. And uh, yet he wrote in Ionic, that is the, another dialect of Greek. And the two reasons for that, one, Homer's dialect, which is an artificial one, but most of it, the biggest component was Ionic Greek. So there's the Homeric link. Secondly, the very first works of Greek prose at all were in Ionic Greek because they were written by Milesians and Miletus was an Ionic Greek. So his inheritance stylistically is in prose, Ionic. But who was, who was the scholar who said there is no Herodotus before Herodotus? It was Momiliano. Arnaldo yes. Momigliano. And what he meant was not that there weren't predecessors. You know, you could trace back elements of him, but nobody had done anything like his achievement before. Yeah. Thank you very much. You touched on what form the writing, his Herodotus' writing was of. Well, what, what exactly was it written on? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, nothing preserved um, beforehand. We know that a couple of people wrote prose works, but they don't survive at all. This is the first surviving complete work of Greek prose. Period. And then um, why or how is it so huge? That baffles me. Um, As you say, it would have had to be written down, manuscript, laboriously, um, whether or not there was any kind of code, any kind of abbreviation to make the task of the scribes easier, I don't know. He could have dictated it to a series of literate scribes. In other words, one guy would get pretty tired and the papyrus would have to be made and changed and so on. But somehow or other, over a period, 
I imagine he delivered versions of bits of it orally. We're told that he did indeed give prize composition speeches for which he was awarded uh, money. Uh, we're told that much later, whether it's true or not. And um, eventually, before he died, a uh, single work somehow, and we use the word compose, that's from Latin, com, together, pono, put, was put together. But the divisions that Tom referred to by books and then much later by chapter and subsection for reference purposes, they didn't exist in Herodotus' time. He didn't divide his work by books and he wrote or dictated continuous prose with no line breaks, no um, punctuation marks, no capitals to indicate where a new sentence or paragraph began. So you just have to be terribly literate, incredibly instinctively literate to read stuff. And of course, probably many of you have looked at medieval manuscripts in uh, libraries, in, uh, for example, the Cathedral Library or in um, the University Library here. And they are exceptionally difficult to read very often because they have their own conventions. Well, it wasn't until the 3rd century BC with the foundation of the library at Alexandria, a foundation of Alexander the Great, but he didn't actually oversee its construction. The library had one aim above all, which was to contain and to edit the best version of what the great authors of the time up to the 3rd century BC had written. So all the tragic poets, all the elegiac poets, all the prose writers of what by then was called the genre of history. And they decided to divide Herodotus's huge work into nine books. Why nine? Because there were nine muses. So each of the books was named after a muse. And the first muse is Clio or Clio. And she, that, it's related to the Greek word fame, which appears right at the beginning of Herodotus. So extremely uh, appropriate because he's wanting to preserve the famous deeds of Greeks and barbarians. So you have Clio as book one, as it were. Well, once it had got to that, so long as Alexandria, and there were other libraries, was not obliterated in a nuclear holocaust, that text is likely to have been preserved and copied and read and so on. Once it gets through the Dark Ages, through the early Middle Ages, Byzantium, remember, is a Greek um, admittedly Christian and theocratic and so on, not really Herodotian in its outlook, but they have an interest in preserving the Greek cultural past. Once it gets to the 15th century, end of the 15th century, and then to Venice, because many scholars, when Byzantium fell to the Ottoman Turks, Greek scholars fled to Italy to escape the Ottoman conquest, such that the first... Greek texts, as opposed to Latin, were printed in Venice by Aldus Manutius, Aldo Manutio. Once that happens, um, a work is guaranteed survival forever, as I say, short of a nuclear holocaust. But, but, but the fact that, that Herodotus survived reflects the um, prestige that he held in antiquity, essentially, 
because absolutely the 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 idea. I mean, you know, there's this sort of endless thing: who burnt the the Library of Alexandria? Uh, almost certainly, it, it didn't. Libraries just fall to pieces. Um, texts fall to pieces, and so only the constant process of copying and copying and copying can possibly keep a, an ancient text alive. So the fact that Herodotus survives through um, late antiquity into the Byzantine period reflects the fact that he's valued as a source of, of, of prose style. So the Byzantine yeah. historians are studying him because they know that he's a model in the way that Homer is a model of, of poetry. And they study him as well because they recognize in him what everyone recognizes in him, the fact that he, he, he is of immense fascination. Um, and so by and large, I mean, I think it's fair, to, you know, obviously there are all kinds of things that are lost, but, it, but if something has survived, particularly if all of it has survived, then that is a measure of the value that was put on it in antiquity. We got time for, I think, a couple more, yeah. yeah. There's one at the back as well. Did you set a trend of when they got to um, accounts of wars after him? And I'm thinking in particular of um, Josephus, but that was around 500 years, I think. Yeah. Herodotus provides a model for whatever kind of history you want to write, and um, often historians react against him. So, as Paul said, Thucydides essentially strips out everything that, in my opinion, makes history fun <laughs> and focuses entirely on war and politics. Uh, so I don't... Uh, is there a single woman in Thucydides? There are 50 mentions of females, yes. individual <laughs> or clear. Herodotus had 375. <laughs> OK, he had a longer um, work. But, yeah. but, but He's equally, much more yes. interested in gender than he, women. Uh, the, the, the idea of, um, of, of, of kind of global history, which is essentially what Herodotus is doing, absolutely, conversely, inspires a, a, an immense um, school as well. And Josephus, I'm sure, yeah, I mean, Josephus absolutely had, had read And he wrote in Greek, Herodotus. Josephus, as well as Aramaic, so I mean, there's not a kind of, in Latin. The, I mean, the, 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 there is... Jerusalem doesn't appear by name, but the story of the uh, Assyrians trying to capture Jerusalem and then failing does appear in it. Um, the story, Herodotus gives the story that the, the mice gnaw through the bowstrings and things. Yes. So, 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 so um, and I can't remember if Josephus mentions that. Uh, but yes, yes, Herodotus is absolutely influenced on Josephus. There was one at the back there, yeah. yeah. I have a translation here by Aubrey to Sir which is from the 1950s, and I'm wondering what the approach you've made that's different, in what way the translation is different from this one. It's vaguely 21st century. Um, the selling cause is, is, is very much of the 50s, and I'm sure that mine in um, you know, 50 years' time will seem very early 21st century and will need to be revised. Um, the other thing is that um, the selling cause translation is, is looser, I think it would be fair to say, yeah, um, paraphrase. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 much more of a paraphrase than it is an exact translation. It's good English. I mean, and he was a classical scholar, a school teacher, and uh, I actually 
um, wrote an introduction to a book which he wrote called The World of Herodotus. So he was passionate about Herodotus and he wrote a history around the text of Herodotus of the world that Herodotus wrote about the couple of centuries, in other words, before his life from the middle of the 7th down to the middle of the 5th. And um, I'm, I'm quite, you know... Respectful of de Senecor, but his penguin, which, as I'm sure you know, is the other penguin, was revised by a scholar and, in other words, corrected so far as one could easily without destroying um, de Senecor's cadences and so on. But it needed that kind of scholarly revision in order, if you're going to present it as a vaguely faithful translation, then you, have, you had to do work on it. One more, yeah. Uh, how special was Rodolfo's travels in his generation? I'll leave that to the professor. Would you like me to have a go? Well, did did he travel? Yeah, I mean, you perhaps there is a, a hidden agenda to your question because there is a scholarly school of two or three people who believe that Herodotus's travels, and there are people who believe exactly the same about Marco Polo, are entirely fictional, that they never actually left their, as it were, sitting room. And they, Ovid. They read other people's travel books, genuine travel books, and then pretended that they themselves had been. And the source or the, the sort of reasoning behind that is that Herodotus, in certain cases, either misdescribes something which he probably did see, or it looks as if he's looking at it, but he describes it wrongly, or fails to describe something which, having been to that particular place, how could he not have thought that was worth mentioning? And you can draw uh, probably half a dozen such cases, and then Against that, you have to set all the other, many other passages where he uh, claims to have been somewhere or could only have written something with authority had he been there, and these stack up and stand up, and therefore one has to make a a balanced judgment whether or not you think that on balance he probably did go to at least almost all the places he said he went and saw what he reports. Now, if you think about the conditions of travel, no smartphones, no dictaphones, no technology. Everything has to be either in his memory or written down in some extraordinarily bulky form. And that he should possibly have got one or two things wrong yeah. or in writing up dropped you know, one or two things that somebody with a total access to a modern library uh, could easily recall. That doesn't seem to me so surprising. So I'm one of those, I, I'm a believer. I'm not a, a sceptic on the, on the travels. And which, I, I, I mean, and, and it's fair to say, I think, that, that recent archaeological finds have generally tended to back Herodotus up. Um, and it's evident that even where he, he didn't travel his information is quite good. So this afternoon I went to the Scythian exhibition at the British Museum, and I don't know if you, people have been to that, but Herodotus' observations are, are essentially structure pretty much everything that's on the label. Um, and there is a kind of a, a merging of what Herodotus is reporting with the physical evidence of what you have 
in front of you. Mm -hmm. And it may be that you know, you're taking Herodotus, maybe he invented it all and you're looking for things. In, in the, I, but I don't think so because I, I, the sheer volume of, of, of occasions where what Herodotus is reporting matches up with what you're seeing in front of you is really, is really quite something. And the classic example of um, something that Herodotus misses is the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which there's a, a wonderful... <laughs> Stephanie Daly. Daly suggests that actually the reason that Herodotus missed the Hanging Gardens of Babylon is that, in fact, that, that the Hanging Gardens were in Nineveh. Nineveh, not Babylon. Um, <laughs> and uh, to, to me, a completely satisfying case. Um, yeah, so yeah. I, I, I agree with Paul that, that, that I, I mean, you read it and you feel this is a, this is a man who... The, the very fact he gets things wrong, in a way, is the evidence that... that you know, he's a traveller. He's, he's, of course he's going to get things wrong. 